Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Greetings and welcome. I'm Joshua. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Seven A Selassie, the author of You Belong, A Call for Connection. Seven A is a longtime meditation teacher, retreat leader, and a frequent guest on the 10% Happier app. I truly enjoyed the conversation and I am grateful to Seven A for sharing her wisdom. I really hope you enjoy this episode with the wise and gracious Sebene Selassie. Sebene Selassie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joshua. Happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I absolutely love the book. I was really impressed how you weave together beautifully the modern research and ancient wisdom and, and so much of your personal story. I'm really curious, how does it feel now that this book, You Belong, is kind of living and breathing out there in the world right now? Oh, thank you for your kind words. It feels great. It was a little bit hard to bring it out into the world at that time in August, you know, a little bit more than a few months into the pandemic and not sure how to launch a book in the first place, let alone during a pandemic. <laughs> you know, it was a little bit bumpy and weird, but I don't know. I've never launched a book before, so maybe it would have felt bumpy and weird even outside of that. But now that it's out there, just love receiving messages and, you know, have conversations and dialogues like these about it. Well, great. It feels obviously very timely, but also at the same time, it feels timeless in a, in a book that could really be reread many times over. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mentioned the pandemic and the racial uprisings from last summer in the book, but those were written in at the very last hour. So the book was all written, and as it was nearing the kind of final rounds of editing, we were debating, my editor and I, whether to include that or not. And so we just started to, you know, I kind of sprinkled references to what was going on right now throughout it. But yes, those are timeless issues that are pointed to through those current realities. Yeah. I was hoping we could begin the conversation and and maybe spend a, a bit of time on on chapter one, really, the, the delusion of, of separation. Could you... Kind of speak to that and talk a bit about the two truths. Yeah. So the book is a book about belonging. And a lot of people think of that word and maybe think of social belonging or an idea of fitting in. And it's not not that, but the way I'm talking about belonging is much, much deeper. And the sense of belonging or connection that we feel when we truly are in connection with ourselves, with others, and really with everything around us, the natural world and the more than human world. And we feel a separation from that because of this delusion. And that delusion is partly just the reality of being human, you know, that we see 
things around us as separate from us, and we start to to build a, a world of meaning that includes separation. But we we also feel that sense of separation because of the systems of oppression and hierarchy and division and all of these relative realities that we live in. So I point to a classical Buddhist teaching of the two truths, the absolute truth of our interconnection, which is pointed to by ancient wisdom traditions everywhere, you know, that we're not really separate, that we are intricately intertwined with, with all of reality. And science points to this too as kind of more modern or contemporary science shows even more and more that we're all kind of this vibrating energy pattern that that came out of basically nothing in what we call the big bang but really is just this expansion of energy and differentiation so that's the absolute truth but in buddhism they also talk about what is called the relative truth And the thing about these two truths, the absolute truth of our interconnection and the relative truth of our differences, our sense of I being here in Brooklyn, you being in DC, those are true, that both of these are true. And one is not, you know, truthier than the other one. We are absolutely interconnected and we also are relatively different from each other. And right there, that paradox for me, holds the truth of our belonging to really reckon with these two truths. I love that. Thank you. You write a bit about this, not necessarily learning to belong, but this we unlearn not belonging. It's interesting because, as I mentioned, it's it's natural for us to learn to differentiate and to see difference and to recognize the diversity of what's around us, our, all of our senses Um, give us that possibility uh, and that capacity, but that doesn't have to lead to a sense of separation. And so I'm making a distinction here between difference and what we might call diversity or uniqueness and separation, which is this fundamental disconnection that we begin to develop because of our culture, because of our society, because, again, these historical or longstanding systems of oppression or systems of division and separation, I fundamentally believe we're remembering how to belong. And that belonging recognizes, and I say this many times in the book, that although we are not separate, we are not the same. And so not to kind of collapse into some idea of oneness that tries to dissolve our differences and and really deny us our uniqueness and our diversity, but also not to splinter off into divisions, but to be able to come to the truth of our interconnection as well. And again, this is paradox, and paradox is something that I keep pointing back to as something that we have to contend with. That's part of our spiritual work. In the Back of my mind, reading your book, there's this metaphor that Anthony DeMello wrote about in awareness that I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on. He writes something about in the beginning of the spiritual path, you see the trees, then you see the forest, and then you're kind of back to seeing the trees. And he never really expounds on it. So, I'm definitely speculating a bit, but I'm really curious your thoughts. It it kind of resonated with me of of that third kind of perspective of seeing the forest 
but then again at the same time the uniqueness and the the inequalities and the in the beauty of of each individual i'm curious your thoughts on that and maybe what other metaphors come to mind around around belonging i really like that and there's for me a resonant truth in how i'm coming to really appreciate the uniqueness the gifts that each of us have to offer and that that comes as individuals but also as parts of cultures or communities and what what each of those can bring to the conversation so i really like you know the spiritual path returning it to us to our appreciation for our differences and it reminds me of a not talking about the exact same thing but a metaphor that i use to talk about coming onto the spiritual path, you know, sometimes, especially younger people will come to me and sort of not know what lineage or tradition or practice even to start with. And they'll kind of sort of hop from one starting place to another. And so sometimes I give them this metaphor of trailheads and that they're at the trailhead and they need to get on the trail. And if they're just kind of jumping from one trailhead to another, from one lineage or one practice or one community and sort of sampling trailheads, they're never going to get on the trail. And once they get on the trail, they'll realize that all these trails actually meet up and there, there is no real difference ultimately of where they're taking us. But from the trail that you come from, you have this experience of all these different sights and sounds and understanding of of the path really that you can, can then bring to the end. So, you know, I usually stop there, but maybe there's a way in which the trails then differentiate again, you know, and we're actually not going anywhere because <laughs> that's not the point. So maybe they differentiate into the clouds or something, but yeah, that's a, what it brought to mind for me. I love that. That definitely resonates with me. I, I feel a bit of a trail hopper myself. So I really appreciate that. If say somebody that is in the place of that, that first truth and in really kind of embodying that truth of, of interconnection, what might be the reason or what would maybe change by also kind of expanding and, and seeing that truth of, of difference? I think that's a lot about really beginning to see what we don't see. I don't think there's a way of getting out of the paradox. It's a package deal. It's the paradox of two truths. And so if we are solely focused on this idea of interconnection and non-separation, we're actually not appreciating what's right in front of us. You know, we're not appreciating the trees. We're only seeing the forest. And that can come with you know, a sense of dismissal, of tunnel vision, of just not paying attention to what's around us and a kind of self-centeredness. So there's this idea of interconnection, but there's not a deep listening to others, really, and to what others in the community or, or others in the world are offering as their perspective, as, of their experience. And at the same time, kind of on the flip side, you know, if we're only in all the differences and all the different experiences, we can divide and become separated in our particular reality that's not kind of focused on the whole and not connected to the truth of non-separation. 
to give more concrete examples, you know, there can be kind of a dismissal sometimes, you know, I'm coming from particular Dharma communities, Buddhist communities, and there has been pushback over the years from like white practitioners who question why there needs to be so much emphasis on people of color or, you know, why do we need POC spaces, for example, you know, if we're, we're ultimately all trying to come together as one. And so there can be a dismissal of, the truth of the experience of people of color in white dominant spaces and needing spaces to kind of study together and explore particular topics and the ask for the white Sangha members to do their work around race. And so that could be, you know, the privileging of the interconnection over the real realities of what people might need in a spiritual space. I know for me, I can get caught up, especially in terms of social justice work, that all of that work needs to be done somehow, (laughs) and that we can't sort of enjoy the truth, or not even enjoy, but really rest in or realize the truth of interconnection until all those differences are solved in some way. And so for wherever we might be coming from there, there might be a need of rebalancing so that those truths are available for us to explore. I'm curious about the kind of realization or kind of those momentary experiences of of belonging. Like Thomas Merton kind of writes about an experience that he had on the on the corner of a street of kind of coming to the realization of this love for everyone and this connection. How do you see this work? Is it momentary experiences? How can we maybe cultivate some of these moments, I guess? I think there are many different ways to it. And again, depending on where we're coming from and what we might be missing as part of the the navigation of these paradoxes. So for some folks who don't see their own unconscious biases dismissals of certain types of people, whether it's based on race or size or class or gender or whatever, that the connection might come from actually starting to explore those stories of listening a bit more deeply, of recognizing, oh my goodness, I never noticed that I do this. I talk a little bit in the book and I've talked more when I'm teaching about being really educated by a particular student I worked with at New York Insight and and then others that I met along the way around just the prevalence of fat phobia and not even understanding what I did not understand about fatness. Much the way that society has moved on in their you know, mainstream society has has started to see the unconscious biases that lead to the over-incarceration, the killing of, and general oppression of Black people. There are so many ways in which fat people are oppressed that I never saw that I was doing, that I was making assumptions that were not really based in fact. They were based in a lot of stereotypes and, you know, media representations. And, that actually opened me up to more connection, to actually see the ways I had kind of been pushing fat bodies away ever so slightly. I would never say that I was dehumanizing someone or, you know, you you have this idea of yourself as a good person and connected and loving, but it's only through that education, through that listening, through that real mindful <laughs> paying attention to the truth 
so getting information and understanding and then seeing how that truth is actually played out in my interaction with people. So that that's one way, I think, you know, really listening, learning, exploring, and then being with our own experience to start to feel that love and connection in different ways. And then I think in another way is a really more subtle and maybe this is where we can talk about meditation playing a much bigger role to understanding how when we are mindful, it's said in the classical teachings that mindfulness always co-arises with metta, with loving kindness, that if it doesn't co-arise with metta, it's probably just paying attention, right? So we can feel concentrated and clear and that we're there, but true mindfulness in the full sense of sati, of remembering it arises with this feeling of care, of kindness. And that's how I've experienced it when I'm deep in meditation, especially when I'm on retreat. There are a lot of other hindrances that show up. It's not that aversion doesn't show up or anger or things, but when I'm truly present, it's held in this kind of kindness. And I can kind of meet everything with that kindness. And when I'm able to sustain that, the point of mindfulness is to be able to sustain this really way of being throughout our day. We're not practicing to become good meditators. When I can sustain that, then I do meet others with that sense of connection, with that sense of open-heartedness and and care. And and then the appropriate response will will arise. Thank you so much for that. That's that's really helpful. You write so much in the in the book about different cultures and how culture plays a, a role in one one concept that you write about that I'd love to hear a bit more about is the South African term uh, Ubuntu. Could you kind of speak more to that and uh, provide a bit of context? You know, I have a very kind of surface understanding of Ubuntu myself. So, you know, I'll just say that it's uh, a Bantu word and it's often translated as I am because you are. And it's usually referred to as relating to kind of the humanistic underpinning of traditional South African wisdom and how this ancient way of knowing recognizes our interconnection. But in the book, I talk about how I was in South Africa and someone shared with the group I was with that Ubuntu is referring not just to people, but to everything. And he goes on to say, you know, everything is people, land is people, water is people, ocean is people, rocks are people. And it really struck me, especially when he said rocks are people, really got how this was pointing to the truths of, you know, the deepest physics and, you know, astrophysicists and people who are really pointing to the reality that everything is in a sense alive. And our understanding of consciousness as just a human or maybe a mammal experience is not really in touch with kind of the depth of the living enchanted world that we live in. And so to me, Ubuntu was speaking to something much deeper, but in kind of our Western interpretation of it, we could only get it on sort of a scientific materialist level. It seems like curiosity and wonder plays an important role in just coming to the realization. Like, how do you see curiosity fitting in here? 
Oh, it's huge. Yeah. I, I tell the story in the book about how I was journaling and I realized that creative and reactive are the same word and the C just moves. And I think the C is curiosity because, you know, we talk a lot about reactivity in mindfulness because we, we can see that so much of our suffering comes from our inability to really meet something without our projections of it being bad or good. And so then our instantaneous wanting to push it away or grasp it, depending on whether we want it or not. And curiosity gives that little bit of space and pause. It's that capacity to actually meet something with interest rather than with a habituated reaction. So on a moment-to-moment basis, curiosity is really important because it, it is the factor or the attitude that really changes everything. It changes how we respond to a difficult situation. It changes how we relate to something that we could interpret as offensive or it gives me the pause in my relationship with my husband to not necessarily assume that something he's saying is a criticism, but it is actually either truth or a gift or an offering. Or uh, So it really, it's to me... Yeah, very powerful, powerful teaching, curiosity. You write belonging is revealed through awareness, which you kind of spoke on, minus our opinion of it. When you think of that kind of minus our opinion of it, how do you slow that down a bit and uh, provide a bit of space? Or could you kind of elaborate on that minus our opinion of it? Yeah, that comes from... Charlotte Joko Beck, the late Zen teacher, she said, joy is whatever is happening minus our opinion of it. Joy, belonging, freedom. I'm kind of using them as synonyms here. To me, what she's speaking to when she says our opinion of it is really these patterns. You know, we all have these habituated patterns that are uh, so wound into our very being that we just take them to be reality when in fact they're conditioned, habituated responses to the world. Some of it is inherited, literally, you know, epigenetically passed down, not just the physical traits of our reality, but actual psychological and emotional habituations that have been handed down through the generations, through trauma, through, you know, experiences. And then a lot of it is learned from our family and our immediate cultural context. So much of it is absorbed by the dominant culture and media and advertising. And so we have these opinions as if we formed them ourselves about things. This is good. This is bad. This should be happening. This should not. But we actually can't even see that they're they're based on fear, projections, past experiences, and are grasping for particular things to happen. This comes up so much with pain, whether it's physical or social pain, that when something painful happens, we think it shouldn't be happening, right? That's our opinion of it, that it's a mistake, it's somehow wrong. I I talk a few times in the book about my three cancer diagnoses and treatments, and it's very hard to get a cancer diagnosis and not think that it's a mistake, that it's something bad. I'm not saying that cancer is something good that we want to happen, but if it's happening, it's happening. My teacher's teacher, the Thai master, forest master, Ajahn Chah, 
told one of his students who was upset about being in the hospital, well, if it wasn't supposed to be happening, it wouldn't be happening. And so there's this fundamental part of belonging and really what so much of practice is trying to teach us is to not be in contention with reality. And that doesn't mean not trying to change things that need to change and not trying to work for more justice or goodness in the world. It's just not being in contention with the present moment. So this should not be happening. Is being in contention with the fact that it's happening. Right? (laughs) Now, how do we meet it? So that quote about our opinion of it is that contention. It seems a bit like a a paradox as well. It kind of brings up like this Stockdale paradox of facing the brutal reality of the situation while moving forward and kind of taking action within your control. Yeah, that's exactly it. Easier said than than done. I, <laughs> That's the I whole practice. <laughs> <laughs> you you write a bit about emotions, kind of being culturally learned, and you cite Lisa Feldman Barrett in that book, kind of how emotions are made. And I was really kind of fascinated, and I, I'd love to hear a bit more in terms of how that resonates kind of with you and and maybe somebody that's dealt with some difficult situations with the with the cancer that you that you just kind of mentioned. Yeah, her work and her book is so powerful and what I was really struck by, she's a neuroscientist and many neuroscientists are actually practitioners, are meditators, are Buddhists, but she is not. She never once alludes to anything having to do with Buddhism. I didn't get a sense that she had really much experience of it at all. But she actually happens upon something that the Buddha points to very clearly, which is our experiences fall into kind of three categories. She describes them a little bit differently, but pretty similarly, three kind of reflexive or effective responses that we have to experience, which is that it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, or it's neutral. And that's just fact. Then everything else is what we add up on on top of it. Liking it, not liking it, having an opinion, being in contention, choosing it, not choosing it. The truth of things being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is all there really is. And the rest is just kind of the seasoning we add to the dish. And I really experienced this, and I described this in the book, with the unpleasant experiences of hot flashes. And when I started to recognize that my bad moods of menopause were actually a response to the unpleasant experiences of hot flashes, because I was really using my practice to track moment to moment what was happening. So rather than just having a general day or morning or hour of intermittent hot flashes and a lot of crankiness, I could actually slow down and witness how my crankiness started like mere moments before a hot flash was starting. And, you know, not really putting the two together until I slowed it down enough to, to really witness that. And it's exactly what she talks about. You know, that we add these emotional responses, they are culturally different from each other because, you know, different cultures actually have different emotions. What we call sad, another culture might call, you know, testy. They're different realities almost given to different facial expressions, different experiences. 
So for me, you know, it really proved the power of these teachings to teach us to kind of separate out what we like and what we don't like from what is pleasant and what is unpleasant. And it starts to allow us to have primarily a different experience to the unpleasant. So we're not always trying to push it away, but we're actually just meeting it how it is. And then eventually a different experience to the pleasant. So we're not constantly trying to grasp things to distract us and soothe us so that we don't have to feel the unpleasant. And it really starts to create more space and and more choice, really, more opportunity to respond in, in ways that really serve us. It seems so critically important and challenging at the same time. On a lighter note, in, in the chapter, Ground Yourself, you write about dance. And I had to reach out to my wife and get some clarification on what whining was. <laughs> 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 how does how does dance and movement kind of come into into play here? It's so important, I think, for many of us who feel a disconnection from our bodies. And that's not true of everyone. Some folks grow up in cultures or communities where there is encouraged a really natural, sensual expressive and really joyful connection to the body, especially through dance. I did not grow up like that. You know, I grew up in a house where there wasn't much dancing, if any at all, and grew up feeling awkward dancing and embarrassed to dance in public growing up and started to dance by going to clubs and kind of drinking enough or <laughs> it being dark enough or late enough that I could kind of go wild, but still having this inhibition about my body. And when I started reflecting on that, I just found how really wild that concept is that we are not comfortable in our own bodies. Like they're our home. The only thing that has remained remotely consistent for us since we showed up on this planet, and yet we have this discomfort inside them, you know, and if someone plays sounds in a particular way, you know, some of us will hide in a corner to avoid not having to like show these bodies, these homes of ours moving. <laughs> it's just so wild when you think about it that way. It makes, it makes no sense that we have these discomforts. So I really started to explore that for myself, you know, to reflect and then to physically explore, like, why do I feel this discomfort? You know, the shame around the erotic and certain ways of moving the body, but also this privileging of stillness in meditation practice and this dismissal of the body and its movement as, as part of the place where we can really learn to be mindful. You know, we put the word mind right there, which is why I use the term embodied awareness. So we can really start to develop what it means to have like a felt sense, as Eugene Genlin says, in focusing, you know, this felt sense of our body. So dance to me seems like a, you know, a perfect avenue for, for that exploration. It's a great example. And it, it definitely, it makes me think I, I'm the person in the corner not feeling so, so comfortable. Around this embodiment, the first episode that we did for the podcast was the author of Embodied Leadership, a book that's been out for, for a bit, but is, uh, I think so great and something I'm just not very familiar with or in tuned with. How would you, just describe embodiment in, in maybe a brief connection to, to belonging. 
Yeah, you know, I come from a, a lineage that really explores this teaching of mindfulness, which has become such a buzzword. And I, I kind of critique the fact that we put mind right at this, the start of it in the translation of this Pali word sati, which is, which is what is described in the teachings as this awareness of really everything. And it starts with awareness of the body. So there are four foundations traditionally of mindfulness. And the first one is mindfulness of the body. Right there, to me, that's saying, you know, before we can start thinking about understanding the mind and emotions and all that's passing through our experience, we first have to have an understanding of the body, a comprehension, a real awareness. So it's hard when we come from a culture where everything is geared towards the mind. You know, little kids are, are really trained to be in their heads. After a certain age, they're rewarded, unless they're athletes, super athletes or, or dancers, we're rewarded primarily for our intellectual capacities. And it's not unusual for people to have a disconnection from that embodied way of cultivating awareness because we're so intellectually oriented that to reverse that, we really have to train ourselves. So I'm really encouraging, rather than talking about it as mindfulness, to talk about it as embodied awareness so we can start to develop that capacity, that the body has a lot to teach us and a lot of intelligence. And actually, the insights that lead to freedom often come through the body. So it's not very free to feel like we can't move our bodies in public, right? <laughs> and th this is a path to freedom. So right there, we can see that there's some inhibition in us, like some incapacity to really integrate our whole being into this path of awakening or to this way of being free. You know, I really encourage folks to listen to those instructions of, quote unquote, mindfulness of the body, this embodied awareness by really, really learning to feel the body. And you also suggest... Uh in terms of a, a meditation practice of, of trying it laying down, which I thought was, was fascinating. What's the uh, rationale behind that? The rationale is that the Buddha said it. There are four classical postures. There's sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. So we think that it's all about sitting and we have this image of, you know, being in full lotus with a perfectly straight back and, look of bliss on your face because we have all these statues around that look like that. But there's nowhere where it says that that is the way that you reach freedom. The formal postures are four. And the invitation is actually to bring this awareness to absolutely everything you do. You know, there's a list given that includes going to the bathroom, cooking, eating, whatever you're doing you bring this awareness. So the formal postures, including lying down, are just there to help with the training. The implementation is to bring that awareness to everything so that I can feel my body when I'm washing the dishes and I can feel my body when I am sitting down to a meal. I can feel my body when I'm sitting in the sunlight, that we bring that awareness wherever we go. I love that. Thank you. It seems like a thread throughout the book is to know yourself, but you have a specific chapter. You write about dukkha or, or suffering as kind of being a bad and, and bumpy, bumpy ride. I was wanting to know if you could speak to that a bit. 
One of the translations of dukkha is a metaphor that ka is actually the space of a, a wheel and the axle hole, basically. And do means bad. So in Pali, sukha is often translated as happiness and dukkha as suffering because su is good, do is bad, ka is the hole, the axle hole. And so when I thought of that, I said, oh, wow, okay, so you have a spacious axle hole then you have kind of a smooth ride. But if you have like a crooked or a blocked axle hole, you'll have a bumpy ride. So I started to think of practice as really this capacity to create more spaciousness within us so that our ride is smoother. And to me, that acknowledge that that's what we can control, but we can't control the road. When you have a bumpy road, as anyone who's ridden a vehicle with wheels on it knows that if there are bumps in the road, you have to slow down and you have to really take care. And so the, the things that show up as bumps in our lives offer us an opportunity to slow down. But if we have a bumpy axle hole or a crooked axle hole or blocked one that's not spacious, we're going to have an even bumpier ride, like bump on bump. I don't want people to think that meditation or mindfulness is like magical thinking and that everything out there becomes better because things are better within. That's not really how it works. But we do have some measure of impact on our experience by kind of what we take care of internally. You write about your experience with cancer, which I can imagine felt like an extremely bumpy ride, I, I guess. And you really speak about it with with gratitude and how it kind of deepened your practice. I'm I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing any thoughts around the difference between the the first experience with with cancer and in the third of how it how you kind of uh, experienced it. They were very different experiences. They were about 10 years apart and in that time my practice deepened a lot. So I would say that in my first experience, I was very grateful that I had a practice at all. And uh, like many people, especially young people, I was 34 at the time, who get diagnosed, you know, started being introduced to others. And I could see even at my young age and kind of the shock of having stage three cancer so young that I had tools. I went on retreat. I started to actually do more retreat and more and more practice and uh, had wonderful teachers, really great teachers like Tara Brock and, and others who I could really lean on. And to have that, those resources where it was so powerful. And I would say the, the big difference between my first diagnosis and my third, 10 years later, was the depth of my practice really allowed me a certain kind of release of resistance. So the first time I was trying to control everything, and I, t I talk about in the book how early on I tried only natural therapies and really thought I could, you know, control this. And, and some people have great success with only natural therapies. I don't have opinions one way or another about what people should do. But my attitude towards it was one of contention, <laughs> really being in contention with what was happening and really being in a lot of fear and a lot of control. And, you know, by the third time, there was still the taking care of myself and tending to surgeries and treatments and the things that I needed, including complementary care and alternative resources, medicine. 
But there was also a surrendering, not a surrendering to the cancer, but a surrendering that to me signified like a deep faith and trust that I would know what the next right thing for me would be. And was very fortunate to receive a lot of support, including financial support that allowed me to do longer and longer retreat. I did a, a month long, a few months after I got diagnosed in South Africa, actually, that was the trip that I was there. And, you know, a real listening in to what was needed that I didn't have 10 years earlier because I was so busy trying to control everything. Thank you so much for sharing. It's inspiring and, and beautiful. I love how how open and, and honest you were throughout the book. Uh, I think my favorite chapter was was love yourself. You write in the beginning of that chapter that every chapter of the book could be titled "Love Yourself," with all the pages filled with one sentence: "Love yourself, love yourself, love yourself." Why is this so central? Ah, in my experience both with myself and students and people that I've encountered, there's a way we come to this path and to any of this work trying to fix or change ourselves from a place of real judgment. Talk about being contention with reality, being contention with ourselves. And again, from what I've witnessed and experienced, there is this underlying control and often a kind of aversion to ourselves that underlies that. So there's this tightness or this tension that really is the opposite of the release that we are all seeking from that freedom and love that we all long for, you know, that true belonging. And so what can counter that once we have really grounded in our capacity to be with our felt sense experience and not be completely just yanked around by all of our patterns. And once we really know ourselves and see some of the things that we can't see and some of our shadows and, but also our positive qualities, when we're grounded there, I think that we can bring a type of love that's really healing of that kind of pernicious quality of constant criticism and comparing and judgment and real negativity that we bring towards ourselves. So that love for ourselves, and it doesn't mean loving your patterns. It doesn't mean loving all the things that you do need to let go of, you know, that are not serving you, that are harming others, but it's loving yourself even with those things present you know, and loving yourself enough so that you can actually let go of those things, that you don't need them anymore as kind of security blankets that protect you from perceived harms or things that have hurt you in the past. So it really is such an important practice. I love it. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I'd encourage everyone, everyone listening, there's so much more in the book. And I, I'd encourage everybody to pick it up. As we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't discuss that maybe we we should have? Well, I'll just mention that, you know, these first three explorations of ground yourself, know yourself, love yourself are, are quite internal. And the book is quite internal because I'm asking people to kind of do this work so they can be in the world with this more of the sense of belonging. And then we give that to each other. But the next two chapters, connect yourself and be yourself, I find are really uh encouraging 
because they start to connect us to the natural world and to those around us and you know really be able to start to see how this how this work can show up in community so thank you so much and thank you for taking the time and effort to to write the book you did a wonderful wonderful job there's a an appendix with meditation tips and even journal prompts in there which i i thought were really nice this has been a great conversation where can people go to learn more about your work uh, my website is just my name, com, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram with at Sabanaiselassie. All right, great. And we'll link all that into the show notes. Sabanae, I really appreciate your time today. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Joshua. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.